0: Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesper Baptist Church. We're beginning a new series, and this is uh, Christmas time. So, the title of the series is Advent, the Unexpected King. And we're going to be looking through some types of Christ over the next month leading up to Christmas. And the title of the message this morning is called The Promise Keeper. This is where we look into the life of Isaac. Please enjoy. All right, if you have your places, I'm going to invite you to stand for respect and reverence to the Word of God. We're going to read seven verses beginning in Genesis chapter 21 and verse number 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And and she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The title of the message this morning is The Promise Keeper. The Promise Keeper. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house. We want to thank you for this church family that gathers together. Lord, we want to thank you for the individual families each, Lord, in this building. Lord, I pray that you'd bless the message this morning, bless this new series, Lord. Bless the word of God as we hear it our, and as we take it into our hearts, Lord. Help us to remember you during this time of our lives. Be with the message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I remember the first time I went over to my papa's house and I went back into the back room uh, where my cousin Scotty lived and I pulled out a DVD. Well, it wasn't DVD back then, it was VHS tape. Put it in the VCR and I remember the first time I saw A New Hope. Now listen, I'm a Trekkie, I like Star Trek, but it's just because I like Star Trek doesn't mean I don't like Star Wars. Uh, I've always grown up with the Star Wars franchise and watching it. And, you know, e- even some of these new I don't know, these new movies, eh, you know, I can I could give or take these newer stars. You can't you can't beat the original trilogy. You just can't beat it. But you know, in, in all of the Star Wars movies, and, and there's a bunch of them now, in all of these Star Wars movies, there's kind of a theme that goes throughout. Every single movie. And every single movie has this overarching theme. And it's this theme that goes through it that says, you know, the, the temptation, you know, it shows us the temptation of taking power in the wrong way. There's another set of movies Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you may have read the books. Um, I'm a movie watcher, I don't read the books. Uh, But whether it's the books or the movies, the Chronicles of Narnia, of course, is an allegory for the Bible. It's an allegory for Jesus. And there's a theme throughout all the books and all the movies too. And kind of the overarching theme throughout that is Aslan's desire to be known by his creation. So in the introduction to this series, I want to introduce to you a word, and this is a word that you may know. It may be a word that you've never heard before, but the word is called a meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. A meta-narrative, some people call it a grand narrative, but basically it is an overarching theme that connects a series of things. It connects these units, and it's one thing that is a theme throughout every, each one in a series of, of items, okay? That is what a meta-narrative is. Now, we're here, and the title of our series is Advent, the Unexpected King, and I know that word Advent is a little strange to us, where we may have not been introduced to that word before, and I know I, I, I hadn't been introduced to that word But all the season of Advent, all it basically is, is it's remembering the first coming of Christ and looking forward to the second coming of Christ. That's all that Advent means. It's just a season that we time to reflect when He came to us the first time and remember that He promised He will come back again a second time. But back to this word, this meta-narrative, I want you to understand that there's an overarching theme, that there is a meta-narrative to all 66 books in your Bible. Some people call it the grand narrative. It it is a narrative that, that connects not only every book and every chapter and every verse and every author and every story and every person inside of your Bible. I don't know if you know this, but your Bible is a very, very accurate history book. It's a very accurate history book. Every single time uh the, the history, uh, if history ever conflicts, ever conflicts this book, archaeologists come around and they find proof that the Bible's telling the truth every single time. OK, so your Bible is a very, very accurate history book. But the thing is, is that this narrative that connects the books of the Bible, it connects the Bible to history, and so it connects us to the Word of God. Terry Dugan wrote this, "...the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, gives us history, and specifically God's historical relationship with us, His creation. God made sure that we would have a record of human history and an understanding of His redemptive plan." This historical record is often twofold in nature. Number one, the things that happened, And number two, the things that are pictured. The things that are foreshadowed. The things that are typed. The things that will happen in the future. The picture, the foreshadow, the type always points to Jesus. You have to remember that when you read the Old Testament, you're reading about Jesus Christ in every story, in every book, in every verse, in every page, although not directly mentioned, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, the overarching theme, the meta-narrative throughout all history is the person of Jesus Christ. And in this series, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you that through types of Christ, all roads lead. To Christ, so we're going to jump right into the message here. Listen, a promise, a promise is a motivator. You know, sometimes I'll be busy and I'll be doing something, I'll be doing my own thing, and one of the boys will come up to me and say, "Hey, Dad, can we do this or can we go here? Can you fix this?" And I can't stop what I'm doing, and I say, "Oh, listen, I'll get to it later. I promise." And then later comes, and then they say, Dad, you promised. Now, listen, I have a choice to make there. Because, listen, my children need to know Daddy keeps his promises. And guess what your children need to know? Guess what your grandchildren needs to know? Guess what your spouse needs to know? That you keep your promises. Promises. Mom and dad, when, 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 you, when, when, you make a, when you make a promise to little Junior or little Sally, listen, you've you got to do it. you got to do what you promised because you have to show them that you keep your word. Because you know who our example of a promise keeper is? Our example is God the Father. He is our example of a promise keeper. As we study the life this morning of a man named Isaac, I want to show you that your God is a promise keeper. That when he makes promises, he keeps promises, and we need to meditate on the fulfillment of those promises because those promises don't do us any good if we don't meditate on them. They're there for a reason. So number one, my first point this morning, we're going to call it The promised birth. The promised birth. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis. Well, you're at Genesis 21. Let me read the first verse. Uh, Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So what was this promise? This is a promise that she would have a child. This is the promise that they would have a son. So when exactly did this promise first show up in Scripture? Now take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 12 for me. Genesis chapter 12. We're going to read the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, and this is called in the Bible, it's known as the Abrahamic Covenant. This is the covenant that God made with Abraham, and it is the first mention of the promise uh, to have this child. Genesis chapter 12, uh, verse starting in verse number one. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go forth from your country and from your relatives "'and from your father's house to the land "'which I will show you. "'And I will make you a great nation, "'and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, "'and so uh, you shall be a blessing, "'and I will bless those who bless you, "'and the one who curses you I will curse.'" And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here we see God promised Abraham, look, I am going to make of you a great nation. Listen, I am going to give you so many descendants that those descendants will fill a nation. And not only will that nation be great and that nation last for a long time, but every single other nation in the world will be affected by that nation. Has any other prophecy ever come more true in the word of God? Here we are on the other side of the world, thousands of years later, in a completely different country, in a completely different nation, a young nation, and I'm right here, I'm reading to you about the promise of this nation so many years ago. Man, if any other prophecy has come true, it's definitely that prophecy that he will take this man, he will take this family and have so many descendants. But where do descendants start? It starts with one child. It starts with one child. Now, if you read on to verse 4, what it tells you is that Abraham was a 75-year-old man. And uh, Sarah was 65. Now, I looked it up. The oldest confirmed woman to have a child is 66. So Sarah's not in the Guinness Book of World Records just yet, okay? But 75 and 65 is when this promise is given. They're promised a nation. Now taking your Bibles and turn to Genesis 17. This is the second time that we have made this promise. So we have this 75-year-old Abraham, 65-year-old Sarah. God came to them and said, you are going to have a great nation. You're going to have so many descendants, okay? So we're promised a child there. Now we look at Genesis 17 and verse number 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her, uh, her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. King of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants. Hey, Abraham says, God, I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90 years old. We can't have any children. What about Ishmael? Take Ishmael. Ishmael's my son. Lift Ishmael up. And God said, no, Abraham, that's not my plan that's not the plan that I have. That's something you went off and did on your own. How many times in your life have you went off and done something on your own against God and looked back and said, man, that was a mistake. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that, but it's too late. Now it's done. But you know, what about Ishmael? I said, no, 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 that's not my plan. I have a different plan for you. Now, um, I want you to just turn to the next chapter. We're just going to read one more verse, Genesis 18:1. This is the third appearance of the Lord pre- predicting Isaac's birth. This is Genesis 18. We're just going to read the first verse, and then I'll tell you what happened. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. So Abraham is there. And God comes to Abraham three times. All three times that God came to Abraham, He promised Abraham a son. Now, let's stop and talk. Before we move forward, let's talk about something here. The Bible says in Genesis 18 that the Lord appeared to Abraham. You know what that word Lord is? It's the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh appeared to Abraham. To Abraham, now hold on a second. Whoa, whoa, we've got a problem here. We've got a problem because my Bible says that no one can see God and live. If you see God, you will die. The Bible tells us why. First Timothy six sixteen says, "Who talking about God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light." whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the reason why you can't see God and live is because God is in unapproachable light. No one has seen God. No one can see God and live. We get a little bit further explanation in John one eighteen. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God... Who is the who's in the bosom of the Father? He has explained him. So this verse, that verse in John says, no one has seen God the Father, but God the Son explains to me and you who God is. See that reveals it just a little bit more. You see this verse in Genesis 18:1, This says that Yahweh appeared to Abraham. But you want to know what this is? This is a pre-incarnate. The, uh, appearance of Jesus Christ. This is, this is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You see, anytime God appears to someone in the Old Testament in human form, it's called, technically it's called a theophany, but we like to call it a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate Christ appearing to someone in human form. Throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see a phrase called the angel of the Lord. When it says the angel of the Lord, and then you see that this angel of the Lord is worshipped as God, that is Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something about angels that you will find in your Bible. Angels do not let you worship them. Angels do not let you bow down and worship them. In the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Angels do not let you bow down and where you bow down and worship an angel, they're going to tell you to get up and say, don't worship me. We're on the same team. You need to be worshiping him. So when the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is bowed down to and worshipped is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. No one can see God the Father in his glory But Jesus Christ in human form, that that is God revealing Himself to man. Okay, so in, in chapter 18, we saw before in chapter 17 where Abraham laughs at God. And could you imagine laughing at God when God tells you something? Everything that God had already done for Abraham, and Abraham's going to laugh at God. And now Sarah laughs at God and mocks God. And you can imagine them saying, God, you're a little too late for this, God. Uh, You come a little too late. I'm I'm, a hundred years old. My wife is 90 years old. She's physically incapable of having children. I'm physically incapable of giving her children. Uh, This can't happen, God. I don't think even you can make this happen. And God, I think God has a sense of humor sometimes. I really do. You know what Isaac's name means? It means laughter. That's what it means. So not only does it mean laughter because he was a joy to his parents, but it also is laughter to remind Abraham and Sarah that they laughed at him when God said he could do something. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do we laugh at God's promises? Do we turn our noses up at a truth claim? When somebody says that studying this Bible will help your marriage, do you snicker at that? Do you turn your nose up at that? Do you mock that? When someone says that church can bring your family together, you just say, oh man, whatever, whatever. When somebody says that giving can bless your life, you just snicker and say, oh, he just just wants my money. You see too many people laugh, too many people mock, and too many people disregard the promises of God. Don't be one of them. Don't be somebody that disregards a promise in this book. So now we have this meta narrative come into play. I want to tell you this morning that Isaac's birth is a picture of Christ's birth, is a foreshadow of Christ, is a type of Christ, there was so much anticipation for for Isaac to be born. I want to let you know that Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for this promise to come true. Man, that's a long time to wait, 25 years. But you know how long Israel waited? Israel, The nation of Israel waited hundreds of years for their Messiah to be born. And guess what? He was born. God told Abraham three times that he would have a son. Three times he promised, and Isaac being born fulfilled all of those promises. Did you know that a scholar went through the Old Testament and counted how many verses pointed towards the Messiah? And he estimated that there are around 574 verses in the Old Testament that point to a Messiah, and Jesus Christ fulfills each and every one. Another similarity between Isaac and Jesus is they were both they were both born at appointed times. Genesis 21-2 says, So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Galatians 4-4, Paul said, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of woman, Made under the law. The last time Jesus appeared to, pro- to uh, make the promise of Isaac's birth, he brought angels with him to make this proclamation. Just as angels appeared to Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds when Jesus was born. Listen, Isaac's birth was miraculous. It was miraculous. Abraham and Sarah, they were too old to have children. There was absolutely, positively, no way. It was physically impossible. It could not happen unless God intervenes. Listen, the birth of Jesus Christ was also just as miraculous because he was being born of a virgin, which, let me tell you, is a very big deal that speaks to the deity of Christ. Do not let anybody in in your religion or in your pursuit of God, do not let them diminish the virgin birth. You know, look, I'm for other translations of the Bible. I read several translations of the Bible when I prepare for a message. But I have a problem with translations of the Bible that change the word virgin because it's not PC anymore. And they change the word virgin to say young maid. That is an issue. For a young maid to have a child is not a miracle for a virgin to have a, a child is a miracle. See, the virgin birth speaks of the deity of Christ. You know why? Because sin is passed through the seed of Adam. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as though one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. You see, being born of a virgin is the only way that Jesus could be Fully human, but yet at the same time, he was allowed to live a sinless life. It was the only way that could happen. And this little bundle of joy that, that Abraham and Sarah held in their hands. Mom, Dad, do you remember what it was like? Do you remember being in the hospital and picking up that baby for the first time? Do you remember what it was like? When, 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 when you hold your baby and they're cooing and you smell just like a little baby and you just fall in love with them right there. And you just hold the little baby. And, and I remember holding Colin for the first time in the hospital and he, he, he tried to get milk from me. I said, that well's dry, Colin. That's not going to work. All right. But you just remember the first time You hold your little baby and it's just such a precious, precious thing. This bundle of joy. And imagine the joy that Abraham and Sarah held in their arms. But you know what? The world would feel that joy when the Messiah was born. Number two this morning, we're going to talk about the promised blood. The promised blood. Genesis 22 verses 1 and 2. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. It was a three-day journey to Moriah, to the land of Moriah. Could you imagine, listen, even God said Abraham loved Isaac. Could you imagine the inner turmoil that Abraham must have felt being torn up on the inside for three days knowing what he would have to do to his son? You know, you know what the worst part of me getting whoopings when I was a kid? It wasn't the whooping. What the worst part was? When dad said, go into the bedroom and wait for me. And he would make me sit for 20 minutes, 45 minutes. I've waited in that room for an hour before. And I'm like, look, if you're going to whoop me, just whoop me. Don't make me wait on it. I don't want to wait on it. Let's just get it and get it over with. The waiting's the worst part. But, you know, just this anticipation, these three days, God made him wait Abraham had to wait knowing what he would have to do. Just like God the Father grieved all through creation knowing what he would have to do to his son, knowing that he would have to give his only son, his only begotten son, whom he loves to be crucified for us. They get there. Abraham sees the mount. Abraham tells the servants to stand back and takes his son, and they begin to climb the mount. As they're climbing the mount, Isaac, on his back, is carrying the wood for the sacrifice. 1,800 years later, another son of Adam would climb that same mount, also carrying the wood for a sacrifice. Now I say, now hold on a second, Brett. Let the, hold on a second. I thought that they climbed Mount Moriah where the temple would be built and Jesus was sacrificed on, was crucified on Golgotha. Well, here's the thing. If you look at a topographical map of Jerusalem, what you will find that Golgotha is on a shoulder of Moriah. So these two sacrifices happen either very near the same place or at the same place. Do you remember <clears throat> how I told you that, that Abraham, it was a three-day journey? Do you think it's any coincidence that Jesus was dead for three days? It's not a coincidence. It's by design. We say, well, how, how does that correlate? How does that match up? It matches up because you have to understand the faith of Abraham. From the very second that God told Abraham, Abraham... I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to make him a burnt offering for me. And the very second Abraham decided in his mind to obey God, Isaac was as good as dead. He died that very second, that very moment Abraham made up his mind, Isaac died. And for three days, Isaac was a dead man walking. He was dead in his father's mind for three days. I want you to also know that Abraham was an old man. Isaac could have very easily overpowered his father. It would not have taken much. But you know what? Isaac didn't do that. You know why? Because Isaac willingly laid down his life. Isaac willingly submitted to the father. It says in the word of God, they went together. It says that twice. Twice it says they went together. Isaac figured this thing out, and Isaac submitted to the will of his father. He laid down his life willingly. Just like the song says, it wasn't wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his love for me and you. You know, sometimes it's preached in America that Isaac was a teenager during this time. It's preached that, I've heard it preached before, that Isaac was anywhere from 13 to 18 years of age, that he was a teenager when this takes place. But that's just American culture and American thinking. If you look back in Jewish culture, and if you look at Jewish tradition, it's very more likely that Isaac was between the ages of 25 and 35 when this happened. Jesus was 33 years old when he was sacrificed on the cross. Genesis 22.7, Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke prophetically there. Because God would provide Himself a lamb. Abraham knew that God would provide this lamb, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And since the beginning of time, all through the corridors of the Old Testament, people are looking around and saying, Where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice? That question was asked from Isaac to Moses, from David to Isaiah, all the way down to when John the Baptist pointed his finger and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. But wait a second. Hold on. Hold the phone. We got, I'm sorry we're stopping this train so much, but we got issues here. The issue is Isaac has not had any kids yet. Isn't he supposed to be the father of this great nation? Isn't he supposed to give Abraham so many descendants that you can't even count them? But Isaac doesn't have any kids yet. How does Abraham reason this in his mind? How does Abraham make sense of this? What is Abraham thinking? You know, that's the funny thing about the New Testament. The New Testament reveals to us a lot of stuff we didn't see in the Old Testament. For instance, the New Testament reveals to us what was going through Abraham's mind. Now if I can just find the scripture about what's going through my wife's mind. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it was, going through, it was going through what is in Abraham's mind. So if in Hebrews 11, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. So let's stop there and let's reason Abraham's logic. Abraham knows that through Isaac the nation is going to come. He also knows that God told him to sacrifice his son. So we read on verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. So in Abraham's mind, okay, I'm going to kill Isaac, but since a nation's going to come from him, God's going to have to bring him back from the dead. Isaac thought and knew in his heart, that God was going to raise Isaac back from the dead. And then the verse continues, from which also received him back as a type. You know what that means? That means that when the sacrifice, the, the, when the ram was showed to Abraham, and he knew that he didn't have to sacrifice Isaac anymore, in Abraham's mind, Isaac came back from the dead. He was dead for three days, and in that moment, Isaac resurrected. It was a symbolic resurrection because Abraham gets the knife, and he raises the knife, and he's about to plunge the knife into his son. And right before he does, an angel cries out, Abraham, Abraham, don't harm the lad. And the angel stopped him because it was at that time that God provided a substitute God provided a substitutionary atonement because of Abraham's faith and because of Isaac's faith. And I want to tell you today that Jesus is our substitute for our faith. So what that ram symbolized is the book of Hebrews tells us that that ram symbolized Isaac's symbolic resurrection but Jesus wasn't symbolically resurrected. He was literally resurrected. And when he was resurrected, he defeated death. He defeated Satan on behalf of everyone who puts their belief and trust in him. See, Abraham is a picture of someone who trusts God even when they can't see the whole picture. Something ever happened in your life and man, you really don't understand it? You got you to trust that God knows the big picture you got to understand that He can see over the hill that you can't, and that when, that when He makes decisions for you, they're for your good. Number three, we've got the promised bride. The promised bride. In Genesis 24, Abraham does not want Isaac to take a wife of the wicked Canaanites. So he tells his servant Eliezer to go to Haran and get a wife of his relatives, of his brethren. So Eliezer goes back to Haran and he sits at the well and he's got his entourage with him and he's got all the ten camels that he brought and he's sitting at the well and he's praying. And he says, Lord, please show me the bride that you would have for my master's son. And Lord, may it be, that whoever whichever one offers me drink and whichever one offers to water my camels, may that be the one that you've chosen for my son. You see, he wasn't interested in her physical appearance. He was interested in her character. And we need to do the same thing, by the way, and not so much look on the outside, but look on the inside. But he's praying, and as he's praying that, when he opens his eyes... Rebecca standing there. She made it to the well before he even finished his prayer. And what did she do? She offered to give him drink, and she offered to water the camels. You see, Eliezer's stacking the deck with this prayer because this was not just a a Monday. This was a very tedious, hard-working task. Did you know a camel can drink 20 gallons of water? And he had 10 of them. This is an hour of hard labor. And do you think Eliezer lifted one finger to help her accomplish this task? No. He sat there and he watched her do it because her character was more important to him. Through the sovereignty of God, this prayer was answered. And so it ha- and you know, it just so happens that, that Rebecca, Rebecca was Abraham's brother's granddaughter. So in the end, In the end, she was willing to leave everything she'd ever known. And and this servant Eliezer took her to the new bridegroom. So they took off on this journey. Rebecca had no way of knowing how to get there. She had to trust in the servant to, to be her guide. When she gets there, right before Rebecca sees Isaac, she puts on a veil. This veil is to show submission, chastity, and modesty to the groom. Now, here's one thing I want you to realize. And I bet you can already see where I'm going with this. But we have not seen Isaac since his resurrection. His resurrection happens in Scripture, and we do not see him again until it's wedding time. Isn't that interesting? You know, the son of promise during this time never leaves the promised land until it's time for the wedding. And so this is, this is the part, uh, this, is, this is the reason why Eliezer had to go get the bride. So the coming together of Isaac and Rebekah, the coming together of the bride and the bridegroom is a picture of Jesus and the church. Think about what we've got. We've got a father who desires a bride for his son. We've got a son who's accounted as dead uh, or raised from the dead. We have a servant that goes and gets the bride for the son. And you know the servant's name is Eliezer. Do you know what his name means? His name means helper. It could also be translated God of help. Eliezer represents the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bringing the bride... To the groom and the lovely bride, she's divinely meant, chosen, called, lavished with gifts. She's entrusted to the care of the servant until the groom marries her. So you see, both Isaac and Jesus. Isaac is the type of Jesus. Listen, they were both promised before their coming. They finally appeared at the appointed time. They were conceived, both conceived and born miraculously. They were both given a special name before birth. They were both offered up in a sacrifice by the Father. They were both brought back from the dead. They had a great company to bless all people. They prepared a place for their bride. They had a ministry of prayer while the bride comes. And where did this all start with Isaac? It started with a promise. Genesis 21, 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, the Lord did for Sarah as he promised. What do I want you to do today? I want to bring this home. What do I want you to do? I want you to examine the promises of God. I want you to examine the promises of God. Has God kept His promises to you? How has He kept His promises to you? Can you answer these questions? When God promised that He's always good, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is always good? When God promises that He is faithful, can you look back at a time when, when, when He's faithful and good in your life? And can you look at a time, bless God, where you can stand up in church and praise the Lord that all your families around you, don't you know that God is good? When God promises that He is kind, can you point to a place in your life when God has been kind to you? When God promises that you were designed for a purpose, do you accept that? Do you know that? Do you know what God's purpose for your life is? When God promises that, You can live in grace and not in condemnation. Do you live in grace? Or do you walk around in guilt, shame, and condemnation of your past? When God promises that He will give you power in your life, can you look back at a time when God empowered you? When God promises that His presence will bring joy in your life, can you think back to a time when you were so filled with the joy of Jesus that it, you could, just couldn't contain it anymore and just spilled out and you had to express this joy for the Lord? You see, we as Christians, we need to be able to call these things up when it's asked of us. God's promises do us no good if we don't meditate on them. They do us absolutely no good. We are today to meditate on the fulfilled promises of God. You know where it began for us? It began with a promise. A promise in the book of Isaiah. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You see, this season, we not only need to remember the first coming of Christ, but we need to look forward to another promise that was given. In John 14:3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. I want you to remember this about your God. Your God is a promise keeper.